This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Jen Ross about digital futures for learning, speculative methods and pedagogies. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Um, So this is an incredibly important book because it's literally about the future of education. Um, You know, what are we going to do? What things are likely to happen? How we can think, um, I guess, really differently um, about what education is for and and how we deliver it. Um, And indeed, who we deliver it with uh, and, and by. And I suppose the place to start is probably with the title. Yeah. Um, and the title is really interesting because it, it's got, I, I guess, kind of two words I'd like to know a bit more about. I'm keen to know why you wrote a book about specifically digital and futures plural. So why digital futures? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, this is a fantastic question um, and one that I also grappled with while writing. So I have thought about it quite a bit, actually. Um, and, you know, obviously... Digital is complicated anyway, because it doesn't just mean one thing. Um, It's about technologies and platforms and databases and algorithms, of course, but it also has stuff to say about relationships and identities and practices and all kinds of other things that are mediated through the digital. Um, But having said that, there's really no clear distinction between online and offline in most people's experiences of daily life, including in education. So I emphasize digital in the book for a few reasons. Um, One was in recognition of the fact that I myself am situated in a field of digital education, and that had a big influence on all of the case studies in the book, for example. Um, And so that historical dimension and how I'm situated as a researcher and a teacher, I think is is important to what the book is. Um, The second thing is to signal that there's actually a lot of things to say about the role of digital technologies in how learning futures, and we'll get to the futures bit in a second, are understood. Um, And it's it's not just the things that are being said the most loudly at any given time. So chat GPT would be a good example just from the time of this exact discussion that we're having. Um, The field of education in general is really strongly influenced by narratives around technology futures. 
Um, and the reason that the book is about futures rather than the future is that um, I think and want to kind of really strongly argue that we have we might have choices to make about what digital technologies are and what they do and how we use them. Um, that really will mean that there are multiple possibilities for how things could go. Um, and I'm, I, I was also really hoping that the book would appeal to a range of people that I work closely with, um, including learning technologists and instructional designers and people who really understand their work as being about digital technologies. So I guess I see the inclusion of digital and the use of digital and title as like an invitation um, and a framing that would bring more people into what the book is about and trying to do. I'm really interested in uh, what you said about the kind of what's the, you know, the loudest or, or the most prominent um, thing that's being discussed. And you gave the example of chat GTP because early on in the book, you talk about the way that, you know, futures, whether educational or, or social or, or otherwise are actually kind of actively sort of produced mm. and, you know, it takes work, it takes discourses, uh, it takes narratives and there's an element of, of them kind of coming to be accepted. And, and actually, you know, as we are in this, you know, what's AI going to do to education and, and society moment? It's fascinating to watch that process in real time yeah. of, you know, kind of claims um, that are very prominent in newspapers. And then, you know, <sighs> sensible academics saying none of those things are true <laughs> and being given less prominence. So I'm interested in this kind of conception of, the production of the future and, and why did you kind of get into the production of the future so early on in the book um i think that coming from again this field of digital education you can't really avoid this kind of i guess it's often called the sort of hype cycle of technology right so in this field we're constantly being told about how certain technologies or digital practices are going to do certain types of things to people or education or work or society or whatever. Um, and, and really often in higher education, um, where I sp spend a lot of my time um, researching, this actually comes from like a good place, right? This is from people who are driving universities to be at the forefront of innovation and change. But we end up with this situation where as researchers and educators, we're just constantly being asked to kind of evaluate the effectiveness of one thing or another. Um, and I'm actually much more interested in how researchers and educators can be more involved in like making and critically examining futures. Um, and, the, and the way you have to do that, you have to start by recognizing that actually all of the ideas about the future that we have now are made, right? And we're constantly now, um, as Milojevic says in a really good book about critical education futures, we're constantly living the dystopian and utopian visions of the past now. So these futures are just being put into play constantly. Um, and they're produced in a whole bunch of interesting ways. Um, so for example, um, there's this, this idea that Neil Pollock and Robin Williams put forward about promissory organizations, um, which are like intermediaries that specialize in predictions. Um, and they make it possible for other companies and organizations to invest in particular kinds of technologies. So they use the example of Dark Gartner, um, but there's actually um, education-specific examples as well. So my colleague Ben Williamson does work around um, the intermediary, in intermediary Hall and IQ. Um, so this is like actually quite important in terms of how um, stories get told about the future and come to seem reasonable, right? It's not like 
um, other kinds of stories can't be told or aren't being told, but which ones actually take hold or is, is a sort of fascinating um, thing. And, you know, we're also seeing like really big moves towards data-driven decision-making in all levels of education. So futures are produced through these like probabilistic methods um, that are drawing on all kinds of different big data, participation data, attainment data, um, all kinds of other sorts of data that are trying to kind of make the future calculable, which when we get onto talking about speculation, I I would say is sort of the opposite of the kind of speculation that I'm interested in. Um, so yeah, so there's those kind of moves, I guess, towards producing particular kinds of futures. Um, and then there's this sort of whole field of future studies that brings together lots and lots of different methods for participatory future making, for example, and those are less predictive and more about kind of making space for new kinds of preferred futures to, um, become acceptable or even expected. I mean, you you mentioned speculation and obviously the question that prompts that kind of overview of, of, of future making is well how do we get to grips with this how do we you know um, study it how do we intervene how do we um, sort of uh, maybe wrestle control or, or at least change uh, how future making occurs and the key thing and it's in the title of the book is this idea of speculative methods so what are speculative methods sort of why why are you into them <laughs> <laughs> you know sort of how do they um provide i suppose the most um compelling framework um to get to grips with these questions of digital futures well i think essentially we have this problem of the kinds of futures that are being told not always being kind of fit for purpose for i don't know like human flourishing if you like um and so I'm defining and working with speculative methods as a way to kind of work with the uncertainty of the future and try to work and work with it creatively in the present. So rather than trying to take a kind of predictive or, um, or sort of rigid view of what the future should be and how we should get there, it's really more about, um, accepting that we can't actually know and therefore there are creative and interesting things we can do in the present with ideas of the future that are helpful now. Um, And so I see these methods and approaches as fitting with some other traditions um, of critical education futures and post-qualitative research, um, inventive methods, and also speculative design. And essentially, these are all methods that are trying to sit in the space between uncertainty and expectation about the future and do sort of creative and playful and thoughtful things in that space. Um, And there's really actually a lot more speculative work emerging in educational research in the last mm, 10 years, eight years. When I started writing about speculative methods um, back in about 2015, there really wasn't a lot. But now we're seeing a lot more education futures work that's incorporating elements of speculative research, like um, researchers making objects to help participants speculate or designing and co-designing activities that are on the speculative side of things, plus also like storytelling and speculative analysis. And so I'm really happy actually that this book was written at this time because I think it's quite useful to um, try to define what's going on in this speculative method space and 
I do think this kind of work is tending to happen in really different sorts of research contexts and a real variety of journals and so on. And so having a look at how momentum is kind of building around that now um, has also been really useful for thinking about what these methods and approaches might be able to do for the field as a whole. And a really useful way of, of sort of bringing that to life is with uh, case studies and, and the kind of middle of the book is um, a, a selection of case studies that think about um, how surveillance works in in education and in, in, in digital universities, about partnerships in universities, about open educational resources and some of the MSCs uh, you, t- you teach on and you're part of, and then kind of MOOCs, which might be familiar um, to people in, in the educational space and they've been around for a, a, bit, a bit of a while now. Um, and, you know, we, we don't need to, to sort of go through all of them in, in detail, but I wonder, um, thinking about that middle section of the book, um, what do the projects kind of tell us about the future of education? I suppose, you know, why did you maybe select them and, and what are some of the kind of key um, insights or, or headlines that you've um, generated from them? Yeah, well, I, I think that Overall, um, the way that the middle section of the book was put together was essentially in chronological order. Um, So I think that something that happens with a lot of futures work is that it tends to be very, ironically, very kind of ahistorical. Um, And so one of the things I was trying to do was to show how different futures come into play at different times because of the context around them. So I think one of the things that this sort of section of the book and these case studies Uh, does is it tells us that there isn't just one future right so the in the context of a particular project um, including really importantly when it happens and what else is going on um, at that time is really like incredibly important for the kinds of questions that are asked and how they get answered so for example as you say um, the the chapter that's about MOOCs uh, massive open online courses was um emerged from a project that happened in sort of 2013, 2014, which was, you know, the year after the year of the MOOC, if you like, there was a lot of conversations going on at that time about what these massive open courses might do to higher education, for example, um, what they might do to the role of the teacher. And those questions are still in play now, but they're not as urgent as they were at that particular time. And so, that's kind of the reason why I wanted to write about projects from across a time period um, and also like projects that I could talk about from the inside because I was involved in them because I think that's the best way to show how particular futures got made and were enacted. Um, also, speculative approaches in all of these projects, all four of these case studies, provided, I think, really lively and engaging ways to work against more kind of instrumental visions of digital futures for learning. So, you know, we were talking a couple of minutes ago about how certain ideas of the future of education are really very strongly uh, put forward at particular times. And they're rarely, (laughs) they're rarely about sort of uncertainty and creativity and flexibility, right? Um, And this is really important, I think, because like the case studies tackle ideas, some ideas that were really buzzy at the time when the projects were done, like automation um, or surveillance, but also more, I guess, mundane things like evaluation in the context of the chapter that was about the art casting project. 
And in all cases, I think they made something really critically generative in each of those spaces. So some of the case study chapters focus on how participants or students can actually do generative speculative work themselves. Um, others focus more on the creation of um, speculative objects to think with, as I put it, that can be sort of prompts or provocations for work about the future. And really, I think that what the chapters do as a whole is surface the creative and imaginative nature of the futures that are getting made through speculative projects and also the matter of ethics and responsibility to the future. So I guess those are the sort of like high level things that come out of those case study chapters in terms of actual like implications for practice for example um, each one of the chapters has a bunch of those um, I can talk a bit if you want about um, what what I think at this moment in time which is kind of like almost a year after finishing the manuscript of the book where I think there's actually insights that are particularly um, important to take forward but what do you want to ask I mean, the, the, the thing that um, comes to mind actually is what you do next in, in, in the book, um, which is essentially a couple of chapters um, that try and think through if you're a researcher, you know, how would you use speculative methods? If you're, you know, a, in an academic teaching context, how would you use speculative methods? And I wonder if we might link those um, questions to the case studies. So, yeah, what, what sort of um advice have you got for uh researchers who want to get into think through you speculative methods yeah yeah this is a great question because i think i see this book as partly um a methods book not a handbook exactly but a book that is about how one goes about trying to do this work and it's very difficult because in the context of speculative methods as as with a lot of um of methods that are described as kind of inventive or compositional um you can't there's not a recipe for them right so in the context of the book and how i tried to frame that i was talking about elements that might be probably are needed for a speculative research project. Um, and those there are four of them, and those four elements are a, um, an object to think with, which I've mentioned before. So this is some kind of um, digital or non-digital uh, thing that helps to bring some kind of, of future into focus so that people can talk about it and work with it. Um, an audience to engage with. Uh, some way of capturing responses um, and other materials that are generated through the research. Um, and so those four things, the question, the object, the audience, and the analysis, um, each have their own kind of things that have to be considered within them, obviously. So the compositional nature of speculative work means that research questions don't stand apart from the research this itself which makes it complicated um, and there's different ways that an object to think with can be made um, by the researchers by participants um, and in other kind of co-creative ways and so chapter nine of the book gives a whole bunch of questions that researchers can ask themselves um, as they design a project that that is speculative and also it 
it kind of, which I think is also really important, warns against using these kinds of methods to try to create practical solutions to anticipated problems. It's not that they don't create practical solutions. Sometimes they do, but the speculative methods really offer new ways of looking at issues and surfacing and examining really entirely new issues. And the practical solutions that might come from them may actually not be what what was expected. So there's something important in there actually for research and for teaching about building in a little bit more time for that kind of unexpected uh, encounter or emergence um, that is really important for this kind of work. Yeah, I mean, I, I was struck, actually, you know, you mentioned things like co-production. I, I was struck, and you mentioned this already, actually, with the case studies, I was struck by the importance of ethics um, coming through. And, and often, you know, and again, you, you've gestured to this with, with the idea of thinking about, you know, these are not, solutions to problems and you know that it's not just a way of let's use this to kind of deal with an issue directly um often in this space you do find you know a sense of here's a new set of methods and practices and we can use it to basically kind of do what we were going to do anyway um you know in in a sort of new way um and i wonder if, if you could maybe expand a bit on the references you've made to kind of ethical insights both in terms of of the methods, but also I think more generally um, in terms of working in the kind of educational space, um, what are the sort of um, ethical questions and research ethics insights um, that come from the use of speculative methods? Yes. I mean, ethics is something that comes up a whole bunch in this book. Um, As you say, not just in relation to research, but also teaching as well. So working with students um, produces a whole different set of ethical issues that I I would argue are largely to do with the fact that um, although students may have signed up for a particular course or a program, they haven't necessarily signed up for the sorts of speculative engagements that can come um, through this kind of work. And so on the one hand, there are really like established ethical principles that hold for speculative approaches. There's no question about that, like informed consent. Um, But even that really foundational principle of work with participants really requires thought because if no one quite knows what might be generated through speculative methods or a speculative encounter, then consent is, is a sort of interesting concept, right? And then I think there's this question of balancing risk and responsibility. And and that's really critical along with how researchers and educators respond to unintended consequences. So it might be fun to do these kinds of engagements. And actually in the book, I argue that that is one of the main reasons to do them is that it's really enjoyable to work with futures in this more kind of open and emergent kind of way. Um, But it's not just playful. And I think that's where the kind of ethical dimensions really come to the surface. So making futures and the process of making futures has effects for participants and readers and for ourselves as researchers and educators too. Um, So we really have to be ready to respond to things that happen. Um, And maybe that means interrupting what it is that we think we're doing, which is why sometimes these methods um, generate some, some unexpected stuff. Um, So for example, in the 
chapter of the book that's about the data stories project, which was a project where we um, built an online um, storytelling tool to allow people to tell speculative stories about possible surveillance futures or surveillance present, actually, um, in higher education contexts. A lot of things happened in the process of that, of making that um, storytelling tool and happened when people started to use it that turned our attention, for example, to the importance and the place of dystopias um, in thinking about education futures, because there's an awful lot of talk at the moment about hope, um, which is very important and interesting, but also a lot of reasons to be worried. And so one of the main things that came out of the analysis in that project was thinking about how actually in the context of particularly issues around technology and surveillance, just the fact of people not being resigned to particular kinds of futures and being able to tell dystopian stories um, is actually important and a good thing um, to have happen, even if the stories themselves are a bit grim, which a lot of them were. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If that's one example um, of, I guess, you know, how these ethical concerns and these practices um, can generate, I guess, you know, really kind of interesting and engaging uh, new modes of teaching. What are some others? Because right towards the end of the book, um, I guess you, you give a set of insights about um, how to use speculative methods in, in teaching. And actually the middle section of, of the book, you know, the, the case that these are really good guides of, you know, here's some examples. So, yeah, what sort of... Um, advice would would you give to people who want to use these methods in teaching? Mm. There's two case study chapters that are um, focused on a lot on teaching. One is the chapter on massive open online courses, which is kind of interesting in a teaching context because it brings in a sort of unknown public uh, as as students or as learners. Um, And the other chapter that really talks about teaching is about a course that I developed and still run, um, which is also called Digital Futures for Learning, which involves students in making open educational resources about a future education topic that's of interest to them. Um, and this this idea of speculative pedagogies, um, so in the chapter about massive open online courses, we talk about um, the creation of a teacher bot, which, it, which uh, inhabited the Twitter um, hashtag for the MOOC over the course of this whole five-week course um, and what happened as a result of that. Um, these sorts of speculative pedagogies, if you like, are 
really, really emergent. Like, I mean, there's like a, a lot of emergent stuff happening in research, but in teaching where people are doing speculative work and there's a whole bunch of stuff in um, chapter four about other work that's going on. I think there's lots, lots more to say about this. So in the book, I talk about generative possibilities in speculative course design um, that actually explicitly tries to confront that emergent nature of learning and tackling wicked problems. Um, But I also talk about students or learners as able to kind of produce speculative futures themselves if they're given space and a kind of reactive approach on the part of the teacher. And also, and really quite... um, in quite a thorny way, I think, how assessment in formal education contexts needs to engage with speculation. Um, And this is where there's actually kind of a gap in how people are talking about speculative uh, education for reasons that are probably quite sensible. Um, And and the book is also interested in informal education and lifelong learning, particularly in museum and gallery contexts. And so on that side of things, the kind of increasing hybridity of learning places and the nature of dialogue and relations of care are all part of thinking about how we engage lifelong learners or informal learning contexts speculatively. This all sounds great. But, and, you know, the, you get this in, in the conclusion, what are the kind of risks um, if you're, um, you know, thinking, acting, doing speculatively? Um, you, you've sort of gestured towards them already in terms of, um, I guess, you, you know, the sort of uh, thinking about using these, you know, for practical solutions, about ethics, um, about... I suppose the kind of temporal nature of speculative methods, you know, so when you, when you talked about um, both, you know, things like MOOCs, but, but also teacher bot, you know, Twitter is a very different space than it was when the teacher bot project was, um, was going on. So what are the sort of yeah risks uh, of the speculative approach? I think this tension between playful engagements and responsibility to the future, to participants, is where that big risk is. Um, And it's, you know, there's pragmatic aspects of that when you think about, for example, how research is supported and funded, particularly in places where research funding is a big part of people's, um, people's career trajectories as academics, for example. Um, the sorts of things, the claims you need to make in order to incorporate speculative work into a research bid, for example, are not necessarily that compatible with the these kind of playful and open approaches. But that's where that kind of um, tension between risk and responsibility or playfulness and responsibility is one of the places that that plays out. Um, but I actually think one of the biggest risks, um, sort of ironically, I guess, is in the questions that are that don't get asked right because with without without really good futures questions there's going to be inevitably a lot of ideas and perspectives and possibilities that don't that don't come into being um and so the case study chapters are all trying to emphasize this that actually the futures that are made through them are contextual and they're temporary temporally situated 
uh, but they also really reflect the identities and the priorities of the people that are making them. And so different researchers talk about this problem differently. So Carrie Facer talks about the colonization of the future through education, for example. Um, Mike Michael talks about ways of drawing out the subtopical um, but for me, it's about finding methods that can help us listen to people who are working with futures that are beyond our own grasp. Um, and this is something we have to tackle over and over again in our, in our work, in our speculative work, particularly, I guess, um, although it is an issue in, in lots of different kinds of research methods and practices. Um, but I guess that's the sort of the not yetness of speculation um, and not yet this is a concept that that comes up a few times in in the book but this is about the work of speculation itself that is kind of always open-ended because there's always that work to do about how how we're listening um, to those other futures that we can't quite hear and some of this I guess is about hope um, and, and you, you sort of mentioned hope a couple of times earlier on but I suppose having that reflexivity around what's maybe missing um, from the speculative approach or, you know, maybe what its limits are in the context of who is um, involved in it and who is producing it is part of the idea that speculative practices um, can create hope. And I'd like to know more about this for two reasons, I guess. One is... Um, it's quite nice to have an academic book that finishes by talking about hope, uh, which is not, you know, entirely kind of um, usual in, in contemporary uh, academic thinking. But also, I'm intrigued by why you finish with hope and, and I guess kind of uh, why you wanted to sort of foreground that idea at the end of the book. I am a little bit ambivalent about hope, uh, which I guess is a little bit ironic, but I really think that I come down at the end of the day on the side of hope as being a practice that we cultivate that can nurture our ability to work towards something. Um, so there's a lot of discussion in my field, I don't know about yours, um, about the kind of tension, I guess, or the interplay of critical engagement with um, really problematic policies, technologies, practices that we see um, being enacted in our, in our spheres of work. Um, and the actual possibilities of doing things differently, right? And so if, if we're interested in working towards something as opposed to working just, just working against things, which can be hard, but is I think essentially worth doing, then hope is the is the kind of practice is the practical um, tool I guess that we need in order to be able to do that. And so it it's a funny one because it kind of needs it needs that criticality, it needs responsibility, it needs playfulness, it needs imagination, and all of that's really hard, especially hard to bring together. But I think what speculative methods do is help to challenge the inevitability of a particular future. And that is fundamentally hopeful, at least when things that seem to be inevitable are also really serious threats to human flourishing. So I'm kind of hoping that the book ultimately gives people some generative approaches that they can use um, for their own research and teaching towards something, if that makes sense. Okay. 
it's, it strikes me it's a very agenda-setting book. And one of the things with these types of texts is, it, I, I guess, you know, you, you can write a text like this and then say, well, you know, I've done a bit of agenda-setting, I'd like to do something else. Um, or, you know, it, it kind of sets you off on a, uh, a particular uh, research path, you know, so you might come back to some of these themes, these ideas, you know, write another book with different case studies. Um, so, so what does come next in, in terms of what you're working on now uh, and maybe future projects? Yeah, I've got a few things um, going on that I, I guess what I'm particularly interested in is something that the book highlights and that I've, I guess, said a few times in our conversation today, which is um, that sort of surprises and unexpected outcomes are not incidental when we're working speculatively. Um, And I talk particularly in the chapter about the teacher bot about glitches. Um, This kind of idea that like participatory work and speculative work that's, um, that involves other people, um, it really keeps the future moving and that is really not always easy. And so I am sort of in a, from a theoretical perspective, really interested in how um, reality kind of pushes back in various kinds of way, ways, um, reality in the, in the kind of broadest sense of the term, um, including, as I mentioned, through the emergence of dystopia, dystopias in current work on data futures and what we do about those. So that kind of glitchy, surprising space is where I would I, I would feel excited to try to do some more work. If there was another, if I had to write another book right now, it would probably be about that. Um, and in terms of, uh, of research, um, next steps for research. I've been thinking um, about ways to use speculative approaches to tackle some um, some new areas. Um, so got quite interested in um, the, the concept of digital skills recently, especially having been to a few events a couple of weeks ago, where this was really highly uh, highly foregrounded and yeah that's probably a conversation for another day but yeah I wonder what it would look like to do speculative work around digital skills 